Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi everybody! Hi, Dr. Nick. Yes, hello, everybody. Welcome to Radiotherapy here on 3 Triple R. Oh, this very cold, blustery Melbourne morning. Oh, my goodness, what a morning. I didn't even bring my bicycle. It was that cold. So stay wrapped up and warm at home and join us. Keep us company here on Radiotherapy. I'm delighted Mm. today to be joined by our regular panellist, Miss Diagnosis Prudence. Dear Miss Diagnosis, good morning. I I actually hear you have a special occasion coming up. Uh, yes, it's, it's uh, my coronation on Friday. <laughs> yes, your coronation meaning? I'm getting married. Ooh. Yeah, oh, so is yeah. it eve of my wedding? I'm in the studio. I mean, not really eve of the wedding. It's, it's on Friday, but um, yeah, very, very exciting. Well, that's the biggest news of the day. But in other news, you've got a, you actually have a special guest coming on, don't you? Can you yes, tell us who that I'm is? I'm very excited because we've got Dr. Sarah Mackay, who's written a book called Baby Brain, coming on to talk to us about all things neuroscience in the brains of people who've been pregnant. Very, very exciting. Now, Dr. Nick, have you heard of the term matrescence before? Matrescence. No, it, 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 it has a slightly odd feel to it, matrescence. No, you're going to have to help me out here. Well, we'll talk all about it later in the segment, but essentially it's the hormonal and brain development that people that have had children, physically carried children, been pregnant, go through. And it's akin to adolescence. It's as big a brain change as adolescence. And yet it's not something that we talk about. You know, I've got a science degree, a medical degree, I'm partway through a diploma in obstetrics and gynaecology, and yet... I have never heard of this term. Matrescence. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing all about matrescence um, later on in the show. Um, <coughs> Prudence, dear. Uh, good Nick. morning to you. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Yeah, but I put my thick coat on today. And, sure. and were you up all night watching the the coronation? Oh, I switched on for about three minutes. I just sort of thought, oh, I don't know. Like all these all these men dressed up as women. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't do it for you. around a king. No, it doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> You're slightly surprised me. I, 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 have, I have one very important royal connection. Um, uh, when Will and Kate had their first child, I sent them a copy of my book for first-time fathers. Oh, <laughs> and I got British. a lovely letter back from Buckingham Palace saying thank you very much. And I'm sure it Did went into it? I'm sure it went in the bin where all the other presents <laughs> <laughs> that were unwanted went. But I still got the letters. <laughs> Excellent. Good, good on you. Uh, now, Prudence, you've got a special guest for us in the studio, haven't yes, you? Yes, uh, coming up in a very short. Yes, we have Patrice uh, Capagreco, who's going to talk about their their book that they're writing and a really fascinating lived experience of uh, breast cancer and um, breast cancer survivorship and especially around the impact that cancer has and cancer treatments have on sexuality and sex drive and stuff like that. So a bit of juicy... Juicy stuff today. So, so you might want by. a double shot in your coffee this morning to yeah, get you ready for that. That's right. Wow, fascinating. All right, thank you. And and you're going to remind us uh, how people can text in if they We'd want to love, contact yes, us. Yes, we would love your feedback and comments on our text line, which is 0466 
10.27. And I'm particularly keen if there's anyone out there who knows a dog or animal psychologist. Uh, I really want to, no, I really want to get, in touch, get in touch with someone like that um, because that would be uh, something that would help with the next part of the show, which is one of my favourite bits. Dog Park shout-out here on 3RRR. <laughs> uh, Prudence, you've got someone. Yeah, well, it's the most important part of the show, isn't it, really? I mean, our listenership are just hanging on to find out who's next on the list. Well, this week. Um, have, you, uh, have you ever come across a Chinese, Chinese crested? A Chinese crested? No, you're going to have to help me with that one. Terrier, I think it is. Well, they're rather funny, interesting little dogs. They've, they're sort of half bald. Um, they're very small and they've got quite big ears, often with sort of big tufts of fur coming out of them. And they've got amazing personalities, small dogs, but big personalities. And I've been running into one fairly frequently, um, again, in my sort of travels around my dog park, which is Dalesford Lake. And um, we often meet Obi. Obi is delightful. He's only a year old and he's got some lovely dog parents, um, Deirdre and Colin. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a shout-out to them this morning. Hope they're keeping warm. I don't suppose they're around the lake right now. It's far too cold. (laughs) (laughs) I did have one one of the dog owners say to me, three triple R, 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 R. Does that stand for... (laughs) (laughs) But it does now. Which I thought was absolutely magnificent. So uh, this is where we normally do the news sting, but I've lost it. So we'd have to, doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Thank you very much for that, Dr Mick. So aside from the coronation, what has been going on in the news? What have you found for us? Uh, Well, the only piece of news that um, I'm aware of that's really, really important was the meeting of the Attorneys General of Australia, which happened a week ago which I'm sure you were all across. Uh. (laughs) So the uh, area of work that I'm particularly interested in is voluntary assisted dying, um, which um, Dr. Israel, you will, Dr. Misdiagnosis, (laughs) (laughs) even I can't get your radio name right, um, which came into Australia, uh, started in Victoria just just under four years ago. Uh, one of the issues that occurred was that we were told that we couldn't do any of that work via telehealth mm. um, because of a conflict uh, with a Commonwealth criminal code which said that you cannot counsel any form of suicide through a carriage service, which means text message, internet or telephone. And it was interpreted that voluntary assisted dying might be seen as suicide, hence uh, that was not going to be allowed. Uh, And, of course, then COVID hit and suddenly everyone was trying to do everything by telehealth and we were unable to provide any of that work through uh, a carriage service telephone or anything like that, which made our lives really quite difficult and, more importantly, the lives of people suffering at the end of their lives. Um, and myself, through Dying for Dignity Victoria, have spent the last three years trying to get some clarification about this law. Uh, we started off with Christian Porter, who was then Federal Attorney General, then Michaelia Cash, who wrote to me about 18 months ago and said, no, we're not going to do anything about this or change the law. And Mark Dreyfus came in. We thought, great, Mark's going to help us with this. Um, but he's been a busy body. <laughs> Mark's had a few other things on his plate. Um, And we'd already started uh, legal action to go to the federal court about this. Uh, We were really hoping that at that last meeting last week of the Attorneys General, this matter would get sorted out. Um, But sadly, it got on the agenda for discussion, but no decision made. So sometime in the next month or two, I have a date in the federal court with our Attorney General to hopefully clarify uh, where we stand on this. 
Well, so best important. of luck with that, Dr. Nick, because it's so, so important having access to telehealth. I mean, you think about, you know, how now after the pandemic, we sort of take for granted that you can pop on a Zoom call and have a chat, whether it's with your therapist, whether it's with your doctor, mm. whether it's with your friends, it just makes it accessible. And I, I understand people have hesitation. They think, how could you possibly do end-of-life care, voluntary-assisted dying care via telehealth, uh, which is an absolutely valid point. I mean, no one is suggesting that we would provide that whole uh, aspect of care via telehealth, um, but like all complex medical care, um, there are times when it is appropriate to use a carried service. And for some of these people who are extremely unwell, yeah. having to drag them out off to appointments again and again and again just seems, it seems a bit cruel. Absolutely, and especially from a, a sort of a regional and rural perspective where, um, you know, yeah, it's a long way to get to the doctor and, it's you know, doctors don't necessarily make house calls, so absolutely. Yes, and even if, uh, obviously, I work in a city, but I went to see a, a man with end-stage motor neurone disease on a house call recently, so hop around there on my bicycle because I can. Um, uh, but he's going to have to be dragged out to, get, to go and see the specialist. Uh, I'm not criticising the specialist here, but uh, um, uh, he's very, very unwell and moving at all is very difficult. So there we are. That's, that's my little piece of news. <laughs> it's not quite as and exciting. A, a little bit of a soapbox, really. Yes. 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 And so oh. it should be. Yes. Oh, and t- t- since we are on the soapbox, um, just for people out there who might be interested in this topic, uh, there is a review of the Voluntary Assisted Dying legislation here in Victoria, which is slated to start in June this year, and they are calling for public submissions. So if anyone has a vested interest, we, through Dying with Dignity Victoria, are putting in a major submission about changes that we think would be appropriate to the legislation. But for those who are interested, please jump online, have a look at w- what the legislation currently is, and put us submission in that would be wonderful we always love to get a little bit of support in that area so (laughs) coming up in just a minute we have the completely wonderfully named patrice francesca capogreco (laughs) she'll be coming up in just a moment this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Prudence, dear, would you like to introduce our very, very special guest? I'd love to introduce our guest because this is so special. So, um, yeah, welcome to uh, Patrice, who's come to join us today and talk about her book that she's working on. And also, I think, give us a bit of background around her her story, which is, I think, really fascinating. And I'm sort of had to commend you for your courage to, you know, to really sort of promote what's been happening to you and your your journey through through cancer, through medical care. And um, here you are on the other side as a breast cancer babe. I believe you like to be called, which is great. Um, so, welcome. For jo- thanks for joining us today, Patrice. Thank you. Thanks for having me in. Ah, oh, it's lovely. Okay, so perhaps we could just start. Perhaps you could give us a bit of background, like what what you were doing prior to your cancer diagnosis. You know, what's what was life like for you? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm here today to talk about my book, which is called. FK with cancer. Uh, FK is actually an abbreviation for a longer F word, which for all intents and purposes on radio today, we're, we're going to stick that's with right. FK. That's right, we decided to go for an abbreviation, but that's because we're but, being polite. Yes, yes, but it is a book about intimacy and cancer. But yeah, if we rewind back a bit to me before cancer, I guess, yeah, as a kid, I grew up on a hobby farm in northern Victoria in a 
um, I guess, conservative Italian Catholic family. Um, and, you know, the nature of living in a small country town um, and the strict boundaries that were on mm-hmm. me at home, I guess in a lot of ways had an impact on um, limited sexual experiences and experimentation in my teen and probably into my early adult years. Um, but, yeah, when I turned 18, I got out of the country and moved to the Big Smoke where I live today. I'm currently living on Wurundjeri country with my two daughters, Frankie and Goldie. Um, And I guess, yeah, it took me many years to um, process and break down the shame and taboo Mm. I had associated with with sex. And it probably wasn't until my mid to to late 30s that I feel like I really had my sexual awakening. Um, In my 30s, I discovered Tantra. Um, And around that time, I had also come out of a 15-year relationship and was just starting to dip my toe into the world of dating, which was obviously much different to 15 Mm -hmm. years earlier when I'd last been single. But yeah, I guess I was starting to discover me. Um, I was thriving in my business, my artist management business. I managed bands and um, other artists, traveling the world, loving life. And then I, Life I got to can- the full. Okay, yeah, and something, <laughs> yeah, yeah and the shoe drops, right? Something happened. I got cancer. And, and what, what cancer did you get? And like, how did you find out? What, what, what? Yeah, sure. So in 2021, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I had found the lump months earlier, but had assumed that it was nothing, that it was maybe yeah. hormonal. Yeah. I'd had no family history of breast cancer. I was only 41. Um, But the reason I ended up going to see my GP to be checked was actually because of a lover. Um, He was someone that had been in and out of my world for four to five years, so was very familiar with me and my body. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was living interstate, so I hadn't seen him for a while. But he was visiting me one week and, yeah, he told me that I I felt different. He'd noticed the the lump and also a a change in my nipple. Um, I didn't know at the time that that was also, I guess, a bit of a red red flag for Mm -hmm. breast cancer. So he was really insistent that I get checked and... Um, I'm very grateful for that because he are. was he was right. It was stage three breast cancer. So I had um, four tumours that had all joined and covered the top half of my, my breast mm. and had spread into my lymph nodes. And sorry, Patrice, how old were you? 41. Oh. Yeah, no, no family history. No you only pregnant. look about 25 now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr Nick. <laughs> um so, yeah, it was like all systems goes. I, I had a mastectomy the following week um, and 13 lymph nodes out. Six were positive. Um, then I did six months of chemo, three weeks of daily radiation. Then I had my ovaries out because um, the tumours were being fed by oestrogen. And now I'm doing 10 years of, of hormone therapy. Um, but, you know, at the time of being diagnosed, one of the co- first questions I asked was, um, am I am I going to die from this? You know, I raised the girls on my own. I didn't even have a will. Um, And I was told that 85% of people with my type of diagnosis um, recover with treatment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, any number is a a scary number. But for me, I was like, okay, I've got this. This is is not actually going to take me out sort of thing. And then my second question was, um, can I still have sex? 
Um, and I was told, oh, m- most people lose their libido during right. and after treatment. Because of the hormone, hormone therapy, because you've had your ovaries. Yeah. So you, would, you would have had a sort of surgical menopause. Yeah, you, yeah, so, but yeah. also the chemo. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the, the side effects of the treatment can have an impact. Mm-hmm. Fatigue. But then, you know, there's also... Um, body stuff, how people feel about taking their clothes off after they've had surgery. And I mean, for for me, I was very grateful that my diagnosis wasn't terminal, um, but very much felt like I'd been given a death sentence on my my sex life, which was, you know, I was really gutted. I felt like I'd only just discovered sex. Um, And I remember leaving that appointment with my friend Emily and being in the car and, you know, they say, different people have different side effects. And I yeah, remember saying to her, I am going to manifest my side effects are going to be fatigue and nausea. As long as I can hang on to my libido and eyebrows, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and I hung on to my libido, but unfortunately I lost my eyebrows and eyelashes, but they've grown back now. They so. do come back, fortunately. <laughs> so you were pretty determined. I mean, that you know, obviously your libido, your sort of sex life and so on, it's obviously very important to many of us. And you could sort of see the threat to it as a result of all this treatment. What do, what do a lot of... Do you know what a lot of other women would do? What, what, what's the, what are their options? Um, well, I guess this is part of why I started writing about mm-hmm. it because there just didn't feel like there were many conversations around around this. I remember calling a chemo nurse once and asking her about contraception and she was like, oh, darling, people are not having sex during treatment. <laughs> and then, you know, there, there was a webinar on sex and breast cancer. And I was like, great, finally, someone's talking about it. Um, and it was for people all with lived experience of, of breast cancer, but nobody talking about still being sexually active. There was someone that spoke about having physical pain that was so severe that that prevented them from, mm. from sex. There was someone else that spoke about how to maintain relationships when intimacy is no longer part of that. And all very, like, important and valid conversations. But I just needed someone on that panel, mm. for some, some hope, you know. Um, and... So it sounds like it was a given that your sexuality, that your libido is just gone with treatment. Is that the experience that you had? Yeah, and for me it's like, you know, if you're walking the tightrope and you think you're going to fall, you fall, right? And so, yeah, there was just no one talking about it being a possibility. Very, very few conversations. And, you know, after that webinar, I wasn't suicidal, but I definitely remember calculating how many years the girls would need me for and weighing up whether I could just not do treatment and live a shorter but happy life. Um, and, you know, I, and that that's part of this is I'm not pretending to he, I'm not here to pretend to be a sex bird or an expert, but I just hope that whatever's worked for me, maybe it might actually help mm. someone else as well. Fantastic. And so that kind of led you what, to, a, to a project of, of writing a book about your experiences. And I have read a chapter and it's amazing, <laughs> I have to say. So, yeah, it's beautifully written. Um, yes, what sort of things then did you cover in your book? Perhaps you give us a bit of a taste of what might be oh, in there for, uh, yeah, sure. for our listeners. Um, well, I guess there were lots of things that I tried. Um, I mean, 
as I said earlier, um, I had been learning about Tantra five years mm-hmm. before. So being just taboo. explain what Tantra is because not everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess it's, um, it's uh, I mean, it's from centuries ago, but it's for, for me it's all around a, a, a style of life and, and that includes mm. sex. But, you know, it's about appreciating the divinity in other people and yourself, but a big part of it is moving energy around your body. Mm. And so for me, um, you know, cancer is a really stressful thing. Um, so when I kind of stood back from it and was like, well, if I can move all this stress out of my head through things like breath and meditation and sound, movement, mm-hmm. visualizations, if I can move all of that energy out of my head and into my sacrum, my sex chakra, then um, surely that would only increase my libido, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what happened. Um but I guess, you know, I also have had some silly fun. I read somewhere that um, the colour, that different colours impact on different chakras mm-hmm. um, and that the colour orange helped your sex chakra. Right. So I had about three or four days of eating oranges, pumpkin soup. <laughs> I had an orange bedspread on my bed. Right. Um, but I wouldn't take my word on that one because then I read somewhere else it was a different colour. <laughs> This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. If you just um, got your cup of tea and you wonder what on earth we're talking about. Yes, we are talking about sex and intimacy after malignancy and treatment. Um, Patrice, I want to ask you to uh, just tell us again the name of your book. FK with cancer. Yes, you can fill in the blanks between the F and the K. Two letters go in there, so we're being very polite here on Triple R, not saying that F word. So, um, and t- t- so tell us more, Patrice. What, did, what, are, what are the core messages in your book? Yeah, well, I think um, part of it is, um, I think, acknowledging change when you go through something like this. Um, there's no doubt about it that... Um, cancer changes everything and but you know those changes don't have to be bad and I think when we're talking about intimacy maybe if you were someone before cancer that was more into let's say a fast and furious type of intimacy maybe a more sensual type of intimacy might might be um, more appropriate for you and I think it's been really good for me to establish what my workarounds are. So I'm on tamoxifen at the moment for hormone therapy. I'm one year into the 10. Um, And one of the side effects of that um, is that I have a lot of joint and muscle pain, which, you know, I manage with going to the pool every day and stuff. But the impact of that for me is that my body can't physically move the way it used to. So it's really important for me to be able to um, let someone know that, hey, that doesn't work for me or actually this feels better, Mm -hmm. which then leads into, you know, how important communication is as well. Um, And, you know, I've, uh, I guess dating is is a big part of of Mm. the book and for anyone who's been in, you know, has dabbled in online dating, it's hard enough as it is without cancer. Trust me, it doesn't get any easier trying to do it with one boob and no hair. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, there's all the complexities of that, of when do you tell someone and how do you tell them online um, or or in person? Um, And, you know, the dating pool is much smaller when you're 
trying to date with something like cancer. Mm. But that's not a bad thing. I found it that it just kind of weeded out all the crap much yeah, earlier. And I met some really incredible people that I've dated along along this journey. There's, you know, some very – I've been on some pretty wild <laughs> and um, different adventures through this journey and the, the book shares book a lot of that. Tell us all about that. Because, I mean, look, it is important, isn't it? I mean, that, that sex, right? Sex can be very therapeutic. Sexual that, healing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, when you're in a highly stressed – you know, life-threatening to some extent situation. Once you get through some of that, you know, maybe, you know, you've got the diagnosis, you come back from surgery, obviously you're probably pretty sore and that sort of stuff. But there comes a time when you want to actually get back into some sort of normalcy, some way of being with yourself and being with your body and actually just enjoying, you know, enjoying life. And and I think for a lot of people, yeah, the sort of idea that, that's, that, that sex and intimacy becomes a non-thing is pretty scary and and i mean especially as well for anybody but those already those in existing relationships i mean having to kind of renegotiate the sorts of things that you've spoken about around body image you know scars um how you feel the perhaps that you need to do things differently from the way before must be really challenging yeah and i think that women um something that's really important whether you're in a relationship or single is Mm. using um having time out to get to know your your new mm-hmm. body through through self love and i think that that's really important because if we don't know what makes us feel good how can we expect somebody else yeah. to try and pleasure us you know mm-hmm. um so i think that um yeah, rediscovering yourself is a big part of it too. Right. And there are people that could help us do that, presumably, in various forms, I guess. You yeah. Know, like, I mean, you, talk, you spoke about Tantra and so on. So, I mean, there are people who teach those sorts of things and they're sex therapists and so on. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think community, um, there's an incredible um, group that I'm part of called Boob Club um, for, <laughs> young, for younger people um, that have been through yeah. breast cancer that meet at the pub once a month. Um, and, you know, for, for me, a big part of um, my journey has been um, a year ago I started working with a new oncologist who specialises in um, younger women with breast cancer mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, has been treating me with a more, I guess, holistic approach. I mean, my cancer was very aggressive, yeah. um, so I certainly didn't want to be working with someone that wanted me to you know treat it with green smoothies but she's really factored in um all parts of me and and understands the importance of sex to me and that that we need to balance that with the risk of reducing recurrence so that's excellent so we could well we're looking forward to your book which hopefully will be coming out later this year yeah that's right and if people want to kind of follow you do you have an insta or something yeah yeah so it's all for sure so it's all um, one word, FK with cancer. Um, and Except you have to fill in the blanks between the F and the K, presumably. No, no, no. On Instagram, it's it's also FK with oh, cancer. FK. So FK yeah. with cancer, all one word? Yep. Thank okay. you. Hashtag Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. And we wish you really well with great success with your book and your projects and also with your health. You know, you're looking great. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for <laughs> having me in. Oh, I've been so lucky to have uh, Patrice Capogreco here. Um, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And when that book comes out, we'll be storming the shops to get a copy of that yeah, one. We'll be reviewing oh, it for sure. Fantastic. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. 
If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've got the, the completely wonderful Dr. Sarah Mackay on the phone. I'm just going to get Dr. Dr. Isabel misdiagnosis to introduce Sarah. Uh, today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sarah Mackay, who's a neuroscientist and scientific communicator. And we're interviewing her about her second book, which is called Baby Brain, The Surprising Neuroscience of How Pregnancy and Motherhood Sculpt Our Brains and Change Our Minds, brackets, for the better. So welcome, Dr. Mackay. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to chat. Uh, we're delighted to have you on here today. And this book, I've got it in front of me at the moment. It's fascinating. So congratulations. It's your second book. Now, I, I wanted to start with, um, we love the positivity in the title, but can you talk us through the inspiration behind why you wrote this book? Well, there were three reasons, really. When I was writing my first book, um, and the, that was sort of 2016, 2017, a paper was published that was the first paper ever um, which is a brain imaging paper looking to see how women's cha- brains change during their first pregnancy. So brain scans before and after their first pregnancy, and we could see that there were enormously significant structural changes taking place in their brains in regions involved with social cognition, empathy, theory of mind. And I thought that was just so fascinating and relevant and meaningful, and since that time that field of research really has sort of taken off. Um, but the findings that were coming out of that field, which is largely driven by uh, female neuroscientists, many of whom are mothers, was really in contrast to a lot of the conversations that we have about women's brains and reproductive health, which are largely incredibly negative and stereotyped, focusing really in on um, sort of cognitive dysfunction, decline and perhaps emotional instability. And so I thought that there was a real contrast there between the actual neuroscience, what women were saying, and also for me there was a little bit of a personal itch to scratch because there always is when you write write a book, whether it be fiction or non-fiction, I believe. And that was I never experienced the so-called baby brain feeling forgetful and fuzzy and foggy during during either pregnancy when my, my boys were little. Um, but I didn't know, I, a joke, baby brain wasn't invented then. I had never heard of it. It wasn't an expectation I had. So I was kind of mm. curious to explore, you know, the, the, these three ideas, the neuroscience, these sort of ideas that are largely negative about our brain, mm. and then my own personal experience as well. So I, just going back to one of the first things you said there, that in 2015, 2016, this was the first paper ever to have been published looking at <laughs> women's brains during pregnancy. So I, I just want to hold on to that for a minute there because, you know, women's health is not exactly a niche area. It's 50% of the population. Why do you think this area of research has been so neglected up until then? Um, there's lots of reasons why women's health more broadly has been neglected. I mean, the good news story is that's really starting to change and we are seeing this sort of surge of interest. For a very, very long time when you did studies on humans, a sort of standard biological human was perhaps a young, you know, university-educated male because they were the subjects <laughs> in the universities who were volunteering. Well, easy to get. Um, but, yeah, and, we, and women were often excluded from these studies um, for good reasons and for bad reasons. Some of the good reasons would be perhaps it was looking at a 
particular, it was, you know, a drug trial and, it, you know, we didn't know what the effect would be if that woman fell pregnant. Mm. Would it damage her unborn baby? Those kinds of reasons are very, very valid. Others were just, you know, the, the standard is there and if we include biological females in this, we might muck up the data because of variations in hormones or mm. menstrual cycles, etc. So there are a lot of reasons which over the years have sort of added up. But I think what is really exciting is that as... Um, you know, women are kind of coming up through the research ranks, particularly my generation, sort of Gen X, who are now mm. sort of heading up the labs and able to get the research grant money in and ask the questions that are interesting and direct the research that way. We're, sort of, we're starting to see these findings coming out. I will say that the study that was published December 2016, mm. come out of a lab in Spain, they came up with that idea way back in 2009. So it took a really long mm. time to, get it off to the gather ground. the data mm. together. It's not like people weren't thinking about it earlier. It was just these, these women were in the right place at the right time, asked the right question, were in a brain imaging research lab and were, were, were kind of not given the permission but given the resources to be able to carry on with the study. Mm. It just takes a long time to do good science. Absolutely. Now, can you talk, because that, that particular study that was published in, was it 2015 that it was published? So that from 2016. The, 2016, 2016. 2016. Can you talk us through the main findings? Because they're absolutely fascinating what they found in that study. Yeah, they are, they are very cool. So they recruited women who were are trying to fall pregnant with their first child. So they've never been pregnant, they never had a pregnancy before. Did MRI scans, which are like structural imaging scans, like a photo of the structure mm. of their brains, before and then within a few weeks of their, after their first pregnancy, after their baby was born. They also did another kind of brain scanning, which is called fMRI or functional um, MRI, which is kind of like a movie of the brain in action, so we can see which parts of the brain become more or less active when they're performing particular tasks. Um, and interestingly, these women were very, very smart because as a control, they included the male partners of these, mm. these women. So they also scanned the men's brains before and immediately after the first pregnancy as a control. Then they thought, well, we might be able to see if there are any changes is it due to pregnancy or is it due to parenting? Because the fathers would be parenting, but they didn't experience pregnancy. So I think that was quite smart of them. What they found was there were very, very significant structural changes in the women's brains. And it was volume loss in some regions of grey matter, which completely freaks people out because we associate loss with degeneration. But what we understand from brain plasticity is that brains reorganize and often streamline and almost remove the superfluous connections we don't need as we gain mastery and as often as we become more practiced at a particular task. Mm. So often we see volume loss reflecting structural organization and mapping alongside that as the emergence and mastery of skills. We see the same in adolescent brains as well. Mm. Um, there's all of these ridiculous ways that people talk about you know, teenagers and their brains, but essentially as they are gaining cognitive and social and emotional skills, we see slight volume reductions in the parts of the brain evolve with those skills. And is that, is that our synaptic pruning? Is that the... Yes. 
That's what we would call it. It's like the removing of sort of superfluous connections. The brain streamlines and becomes more efficient Mm -hmm. and flexible and and sort of better at doing what it does. And we see that in terms of how the connections communicate. They become more efficient um, and flexible um, and responsive, essentially. Um, And to to go back to the the women's Mm -hmm. brains immediately after pregnancy, the volume loss is seen in these brain regions involved with social cognition, so reading social cues, empathy, and theory of mind, so the ability to read other people's thoughts and feelings, and primarily those would be, and you know, what has Mother Nature intended, and that would be to read the social cues of this new little human that has arrived mm. in your life, and and what are the social cues of babies? Well, they're born really with two or three main kind of social signals. So one is they're crying, <laughs> they cry, we pick them up, we feed them, we comfort them. There is their cute that we call this their you know cuteness, and that's their cute little sort of faces. Like this lovely, and you want to squeeze them, and it makes everyone kind of go. And every culture around the world, we want to sort of we 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 respond to cuteness in the same way, and that also includes the, the cute little giggly sounds they make, and mm-hmm. also olfactory cuteness. So their smell mm-hmm. is incredibly captivating, and anyone who's had anything to do with newborn babies, particularly if it's your own, their smell is just. It's something, and it's very mammalian, your response to all of this. So what we saw was the mothers whose brains showed the um, biggest changes, and in this case, the most significant, you know, bigger reductions in volume, bigger structural reorganisation, showed more sensitivity to the social cues of their babies, both in reporting how they felt and responded to their babies, but also when we imaged their brains to see how their brains responded to images of their babies or sounds of their babies crying. So essentially, just sort of sum it up, what we mm. understand is that, that, that pregnancy and subsequent studies have gone in and looked at, was it the hormones, particular hormones? We now know it's that, that pr- primarily estradiol, one of the types of estrogen during the third trimester of pregnancy, sculpts brains in preparation to prepare our minds for motherhood. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Thank you so much for that, Dr. McKay. It's so interesting. So structural changes. We've got grey matter loss. We've got sort of an organisation of the brain that means that women are sort of more attuned in sort of social cognition, empathy and theory of mind. Mm. So my Mm. other question with this is... um, some of this research has been in the effects of sort of pregnancy itself and, as you said, estradiol and some of that hormonal mm. cascade in the third trimester that primes a brain to look after mm. a tiny person who's come into the world. What mm. about brain changes in non-birth parents? Has there been much study into yeah. the changes in, for instance, foster parents or in you know, same-sex couples where one of the couple didn't, wasn't the birth parent? Yeah, for sure. So there hasn't been as much because, remember, this is the first study of... Mm, yes, yeah, no, I'm jumping the gun a bit. <laughs> However, there, there has been a little bit, not as much as some of us would like. There was a fascinating study which was commenced um, in Melbourne by um, 
researchers down there who were interested in um, lesbian couples, so the birth mother and then the non, non-birthing mother. Um, unfortunately, COVID did get in the way of some of oh. that data gathering, mm. and I think they ended up with about nine couples, so they mm. haven't been able to make any really kind of significant um, contributions to that story. But there have been, over time, various studies done, perhaps looking at gay male parents, mm. so the lesbian couples, and then your sort of more, more heterosexual male-female couples with the mothers, obviously, the birthing parents. I think the, the, the first point to make is if we go back to that first study, the, the, the control included was of the, the male, mm. the, the fathers of those babies. And, we, and in comparison to the mother's brains, the birth mother's brains, they didn't change at all, really. Wow. However, wow. if you zoom in on the father's brains and only look at them, they saw what they saw was, and then they kind of gathered some more men in to up the data set, they found that some brains changed a little bit and that they lost a tiny bit of volume here or there mm. and others gained a tiny bit of volume here or there and others didn't change much at all. So it kind of averaged out at nothing. But when they delved even further into the data, what they found was that the changes were dose-responsive. Mm. Now, if you think about it, the, the father of a child could be there for conception only and never be seen again, mm-hmm. or he could be the primary caregiver. So the degree of change that we saw in these men was dose-dependent, depending on how much caregiving they they were involved in. So if they were the primary caregiver, this dreadful term hands-on dad, which I don't don't like, (laughs) but infantilising, but um, the men who were more engaged with caregiving, their brains showed more changes than the men who were disengaged, which which is very interesting and almost kind of what you'd expect because Mm. we know brains change depending on experience. And similar changes have been seen in the brains of non-birth mothers, so perhaps Mm -hmm. there was a lesbian couple. Um, What is interesting is they've also gone in, and I suppose this could be, uh, they've looked at foster mothers or adoptive mothers of babies. So, um, and this would probably be relevant to any non-birthing parents. What would they've done is a different type of um, brain study where they've used EEG. So they've recorded from the scalp of Mm -hmm. people to look at how um, sort of brain waves respond. So we can sort of peer inside and look at images of the brain or we can look at to see how the brain waves respond and get a recording of that. And we can see a birthing mother will respond to her baby's cry with a particular pattern of brain waves. But what was interesting was that the foster mothers and the adoptive mothers responded in the same way mm. to their new baby. Um, and then they also reported the same range of emotions. So a birthing mother could report a range of emotions when she holds hold her baby in her hand, arms for the first time. It could be like absolute and complete and utter love, like I've, met, I've known this person my whole life, all the way through to sort of ambivalence, to fear, to anger, to, you know, there's an entire range of emotions in the adoptive and the birth mothers show this, this same range of emotions. So, and I think that that's really important and relevant because if we look at human parenting from an evolutionary perspective, Mother Nature didn't intend the biological birth mother to parent alone. Mm. Because humans are what we call allo-parenting mammals. We share care. And so the, the, the sort of what, what, what we see is all the brains of all of the adults which are involved with care of, a, of an infant respond to that baby. And the more engaged they are, the more experiences they have. Um, the more their brains change. Studies have even been done looking at grandmothers' brains. Um, and, and again, we see that their brains change and respond to, to the babies too. So um, I think that's really great news for anyone who's not the birth mum. Mm. 
No, absolutely. You, you now back out. to um, <laughs> now back to the back to the baby brain side of things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I personally, I I've never been pregnant. I've never had a child, but I have had my share of sleep deprivation working in the medical system. Mm. And at, after the end of you know seven night shifts on working a hundred and something hours in a week and not sleeping very much, I absolutely leave my keys you know in the bottom of somewhere, forget my wallet, mm-hmm. walk out of the house and shut the door behind me and forget my glasses, that kind of thing. Uh, what people attribute this sort of brain fuzziness, how much of that is just sleep deprivation? Well, it's interesting because we see it. Women, women are reporting it during, during pregnancy as well. Mm. So what, we, what we're sort of seeing is that pregnant, during pregnancy and motherhood, women kind of almost, you know, in the, in the same rates, it's about 80% of women will say, I am experiencing forgetfulness, fuzzy-mindedness, the inability to pay attention, I'm forgetting things. So that, that's quite a universally described experience. Um, but when we bring these same women into the research labs, sit them down in a nice, quiet room where they're not distracted, there's not a lot going on, and we say, here's a, here's a range of cognitive tests that will test forgetfulness or inability to pay attention, memory, et cetera, et cetera. We just do not see any broad-scale cognitive decline or dysfunction, um, problems with, with memory, with remembering. And that is, I think really good news. (laughs) I think it's really, really good news that we're not detecting cognitive decline as a result of pregnancy. I mean, that would be, that would be a disastrous news if that was indeed the case. It would set us back generations. That is fantastic news, Sarah. There's a wonderful question that's come through on the text line. Someone saying, could you please ask if there are any data around changes in the brain connected to delivery type? Is there any difference in the changes comparing vaginal delivery with caesarean? Good question. The study that looked at um, the changes that took place found no changes. They looked at whether the ba- how the babies were born. They also looked at method of conception, whether it was through IVF or natural conception, etc. They looked to see um, whether the mothers chose to breastfeed straight away or bottle fed. They looked to see whether there were twins, um, etc. And there were not. And, and the changes were universal. Okay. It was, it was real, and, the, the studies that have followed up beyond this first one that was that came out of the Spanish lab, um, it's really the third, the third trimester pregnancy hormones. And just to go back to the studies on memory, so when I said we're not finding any kind of cognitive decline, which is great news, but occasionally some studies will detect a little bit of memory loss, but it'll be like one point on average less than a you know, list of 10 items to remember. And if it is, and it's found in the third trimester, so this time when we know the biggest reorganisation is taking place, but by the same token, other studies have found memory enhancement during that third trimester as well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Sarah, we ought to just check with you. Where can people get this magnificent tome? Well, if they're in Australia, it should be in your local bookshop. (laughs) (laughs) And all all good bookshops everywhere. You can also buy it online through Booktopia and it's available globally um, as an e-book, so you can download it onto your Kindle or whatever device and you d- have. And there's also an audio book. 
And I, and I have to ask you one question. I did have a woman say to me when I mentioned this book, she said, if any woman says to me if, that I didn't get baby brain, my brain did not turn to mush, I will kill her because I absolutely well, <laughs> did. <laughs> well, I think that the point, what I'm trying to make here is that baby brain is experienced by women, but it's not caused by something neurological. So what we, what we believe is going on is there are... So we've got this cognitive reorganisation in the third trimester of pregnancy and that refocuses your attention onto your newborn baby and that's Mother Nature's mandate to really keep that baby alive. Memory depends on attention, so what information we take in and what we filter out. And when there is a lot going on, as there is during early motherhood, um, you know, you're, whether you're pregnant and you're constantly thinking about this baby inside your belly, or you're, you know, you're mastering the tasks of early motherhood, there is just so there are so many things going on. So if we forget one thing every now and then, <clears throat> and it could be something tiny, like forgetting a nappy when you leave the house, which is actually a catastrophe, we've been primed, we've been told you know, most of our lives, to blame our reproductive health, to blame our hormones when something goes wrong in our brains. We're not seeing something neurological here. What we're probably seeing is a symptom, as a shorthand phrase for, I'm overwhelmed, I simply can't do it all. And when we experience this moment of forgetfulness, it becomes sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. So neuroscientists are really moving away from thinking, oh, this is a serious neurological issue here. It's not. It's more a symptom of, you know, the emotional labour, the mental load of motherhood, and it's probably suited society, really, to let women blame themselves and to default to blaming our brains when something go wrong, goes wrong instead of perceiving it as, as sort of more of a, a societal issue which could be solved by more, more support. So those women who say, I absolutely had baby brain, they're right, there were things that were different, but what they can be reassured about is there's no long-term damage or structural problem. Their brains no, are working just no, fine, no. they're just working a bit differently. Sarah Mackay, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time and uh, really look forward to it. I've read the book, it's marvellous. I can recommend it to anyone who's interested, and even those who aren't interested should read it anyway. Dads should read it. There's not about dads in there as well. Dr. Sarah Mackay, Baby Brain, thank you very much for coming on the show. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. A wonderful message uh, for our previous guest um, saying, what was the name of that FK cancer person and how can I get it? I uh, don't think the book's out yet. It'll be out soon. Uh, but her name is Patrice Capogreco. How could you possibly forget a name like that? <laughs> oh, it's time to wrap up. Uh, a huge thank you to our wonderful guest. That was Patrice Capogreco in the studio. Our telephone guest, Sarah Mackay, and her magnificent book, Baby Grain. <laughs> Baby Brain. Um, thank you for the multi-talented Dr. Nick. Team misdiagnosis prudence dear Dr. Sonia will be back with us next time. I've been Dr. Nick. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.